again to wrestling. Hello and welcome to Wrestling and Everything Cuss Cuss with your host, Buddy Sattel Esquire and Mike Leno. Mike, go ahead. Okay, very quickly, want to let everybody know, Evan still has, he's taken some time off. Uh, he, uh, well, we'll nag him. Hopefully we'll get him back very soon. Next week, though, we have Jonathan Schwartz coming back and we are honoring Lord Al Hayes. We actually have his daughter who's doing a lot of projects with him, like when Russ brought on Sergeant Slaughter's daughter. Very similar. Uh, I want to pay quick tribute to somebody that our big special guest, DC Drake, you know him, you love him. Uh, particularly if you're on the East Coast, he was a staple for all of us. But we lost a brother, brother of mine and photographer, writer, Blackjack Brown, who I believe in my tribute, uh, written tribute, was the very first guy in the 70s, around 77, to have a 1-900 hotline type thing way before uh, WCW or WWF. Uh, he uh, was trained to be a photographer uh, with the greatest of them all in George Napolitano, who also had him write a one-pager in every Madison Square Garden program for Vince McMahon Sr. from about 77, 78 on. He uh, also worked for all of George Napolitano's Starlog magazines, was a, a longtime photographer. George went to his service Wednesday in the Detroit area right after he got back from the Ric Flair last match, that entire three, four-day weekend in Nashville, and then flew uh, to his, his service but we really want to pay tribute to uh, Black Jack Brown, just a uh, super guy. And I'll ask our guest uh, his memories, perhaps, on him. But uh, uh, anyway, DC Drake was in so many promotions. Obviously, people remember from the non-Johnny Powers NWF, but also, of course, Joel Goodhart, who has a book hopefully coming out. We were just talking about that. Joel Goodhart's TWA which was really the precursor to ECW, where he also worked. Then uh, Joel's second-in-command, Todd Gordon, you know, kind of was owner running the place. But DC Drake now is helping others. We're going to get into that uh, and, uh, and so much more. But DC, for starters, welcome to the show. And what is that background? It looks like, uh, is it Lava Rock? Is that uh, like uh, Kauai? A shot from Kauai, uh, or tell us what that background is. Well, well, you know, uh, thanks, Mike and Russ, for having me. But um, that was something when I got on Skype today, I was playing with the background, and I clicked on it, and I wasn't able to get it off. So whatever it is, I don't know. But um, <laughs> You heard about that story about the lawyer who turned into a cat once, uh, and he couldn't get out of it. So it's better <laughs> off than you being, being having a cat background and not being able to, to fight your way out of that. Right, and it's not hot either, so it's okay. I don't feel any heat from it, so I'm, I'm okay. Well, I'm sitting here watching before the show started, and these A&E documentaries, which I'm supplying photos for about half of them, they're doing Lex Luger. Uh, they were doing Kurt Angle last week, but they're focusing, you know, they kind of get through the wrestling stuff, and they're going into their addictions uh, to pain meds, and, you know, Lex had uh, an even worse problem because he was accused of selling and distributing drugs and stuff. But uh, we'll get into the wrestling, which I know what people want to hear about, but you are an, a, an American addictions counselor. And uh, besides, obviously, a longtime great wrestler known globally and a former promoter. Um, but, well, let's get into the wrestling. We'll, we'll get into that other, but it's so topical that uh, these A&E WWE documentaries every Sunday are 
sort of taking a WWE approach to the dark side of the ring documentaries on Vice, where almost every one of them, you know, were heavy, heavy material, you know, wrestlers on drugs or mystery. Well, you can call it dark side of the ring for nothing. Yeah. Well, uh, actually, actually, Mike, I'm, I'm retired now from that work. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Yeah, I mean, I did it for probably over 30 years. I was a um, licensed clinician in the state of Massachusetts, a licensed psychotherapist. And I actually got into the work, believe it or not, I started in law enforcement. Whoa. In, in 1977 for the state of New Jersey in corrections. And I was there for 10 years. And it was a combination of that work and having a grandmother who was an alcoholic that actually steered me towards that kind of that kind of work as a, as a career. And then, of course, my love of wrestling um, intervened, you know, which I guess I did wrestling full time for several years, but I always had that back, that career in the back. You know, I always made sure I had that career and um, I loved it. And I retired in a couple of years ago and now I work for another law attorney. Uh, I say to retirement for about six months. That was all I could deal with. And um, I, I come out. Working with another law attorney now, I, I do marketing for him, I do presentations for him, a lot of it around senior drug addiction, a lot of it around uh, senior bullying, and uh, also help him with a lot of the clients he works with. He, working in elder law, he has a lot of clients that uh, are guardianship cases, and my background in mental health, I help him with that. So that's the work I do right now. I run his website, and uh, and he works. Uh, it's, it's all over southern New England. He does... Um, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. So it keeps me pretty busy. And you and I were born in the same year. I already had my 65th birthday. Yours is coming up in a month and a couple of days. Yep. Uh, and I have no plans to retire, you know, even though I'm, I've not shot a, a wrestling show, which has been my calling since the 60s, <laughs> ringside, you know, writing and shooting for the magazines. But I still am busy with these all-nighters where I have to print up stuff and, and get A and E. I've, I've said that I always want to. I always want to end up like some of our best presidents and die in office. <laughs> well, Blair almost did that last uh, weekend. Uh, but Don, let's start at, at the very start. Um, how did you get interested in, in wrestling? Now that was a big hotbed, the Northeast. Yeah. No era. I, I, somebody I was close to since 1971 up until his passing. Uh, but tell us how you first caught the bug, maybe who broke you in, how did you get involved in wrestling, but how did you start watching in the first place? And was it like Bruno stuff or some other? Yeah, it was Bruno. Actually, you know, I, again, I go back to my childhood and probably about seventh or eighth grade, I really started getting interested in wrestling. And uh, my father, who worked in a in a steel in a uh, in a mill a, a um, textile mill ended up breaking his back, and so he was laid up most of his life. You know after that happened, so Bruno actually became almost like a de facto father to me. He was a guy that I, I looked up to and I watched and I followed, and um, I enjoyed it so much that you know I started doing like, the backyard wrestling things with people, and. Um, Went through high school. Once I got my driver's license, I started going to the Philadelphia Arena every three weeks when they were doing the taping, and that was that had to, that had to be. And then a couple of friends went with me, and going there really got the bug going. And uh, I worked out in the gym, wanted to be a wrestler, 
I actually trained myself in, in most of the stuff I trained myself in. And then I, I hooked up with a guy named Tito Torres mm. out of Jersey City. And he's the guy that actually trained me. And then from there, I went with the Savoldis and did work for them. Oh, boy, do I have a lot of Mario and Angelo and Mario's brother. I forget his name, the heavy smoker. Uh, uh, Tommy? Yeah, a uh, lot of stories. Yeah. Uh, we don't need to go in, but characters, because they had the ICW, and then when they, I don't know what they did, they bought X amount of footage from Fritz and the Atkinson family, Fritz von Erich. It was changed to IWCCW because they were buying world-class championship wrestling, some of their footage. I think that was the bit of it. But so, you, and a lot of guys got their start there. Once uh, Tommy Dreamer uh, came in, I think he trained uh, with Johnny Rods at Gleason's in New York City or New York uh, proper, uh, started working for the Savoldis during the Zip, Zap, and Zoom. And I think uh, Sandman kind of got started there, if I'm not, maybe I'm mistaken. And Tommy, was it, was it, uh, uh, well, there, anyway, there was quite a bit of guys that really got their start. They were uh, dyed in the wool, Northeast Philly, Jersey, New York guys. Guys like Blue uh, Meanie also, you know, Blue Meanie was. But do you have any, uh, you know, it's always fun talking ribs and roadsters. Do you have any classics of all these stories or get stiffed or anything? Uh, well, you know, was... <laughs> Actually, um, they treated me pretty well. I went on several, several overseas tours with them, but actually I think it was my second match with them. They put me in a ring with a bear. Really? Yeah, it was up in it was in Maine. I think it was in Portland, but I don't remember. It was me and it was um, the Invader number number one, I think. Oh, Jose Gonzalez. Jose Gonzalez. Yeah. So Mario had that, uh, or uh, not the world's most popular person. Yeah, yeah. That, but he had that. Yeah, he he veered. Uh, he was doing stuff with both. Victor Quinones and then the long-standing Carlos Colon uh, promotion, the World Wrestling Council. I WWC, yeah, the World Wrestling Council. Well, you know, it was it was that match that um, they told us not to get the bear mad. <laughs> Just went and play with it, right? So, you know, I was new, relatively new. I was strong, benching 500 pounds, and I got in the ring with this bear, and I said, this bear looks kind of scroungy and mangy and... And so the invader says, I mean, I know he, after the fact that it was a rib more than anything else, he said, listen, I'll go grab the leg and you can knock it over. I said, okay. So he goes and grabs the leg. I run over and knock it over. And that bear got mad. <laughs> and it got up and it took its paw. And the last thing I remember is that paw coming down on me. Jeez. And I woke up outside the ring on the floor. <laughs> and uh, wow. yeah, that was my, my second match with the Savoldis. And he came back and was yelling at me and, you know, I told you not to make it bad. I said, well, you know, but yeah, that was, that's one of my favorite stories. Oh, you, you didn't stooge on the Jose. No, 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 I, I knew better, but it was, um, <laughs> I never had a really bad, anything bad with them. They, they always, <laughs> I had a lot of fun with them, but you always kind of watch. I heard, no, I heard the stories, believe me, but, um, well, he brought us in, he flew us into Vegas twice and it was myself, Les Thatcher, some quality people, Hacksaw, Jim Duggan. Honky Tonk Man, George Steele, Jim Myers was his real name, mm -hmm. and a couple of others. And we were doing voiceover for all this world class stuff. And then, but you know, we get to the hotel and they say, "Oh, Mr. Savoldi is asking that we uh, take your credit cards to uh, 
you know, you know, whatever for the hotel room. And I told all the rest of the guys, absolutely not. No, tell them to come down and pay for these rooms. We're not even thinking giving you the hotel staff our credit cards, you know, they didn't want us getting stiff with the rooms and it all worked out and we had, you know, fun and we came back a second time, but you had to be tough, like right from the get go. So you get taken advantage of it. Um, DC, I I had a question for you and that is, uh, given your dad had that terrible back injury that that he was pretty much crippled from that mm -hmm. accident that he had, did that ever get into your mind that you know you were in wrestling and you're in such a highly dangerous profession especially when you started doing the ecw stuff because that stuff took you know hardcore and took it to another level did you ever worry that you were going to wind up like your dad maybe or that you know that that sort of thing could happen to you no but i can tell you that um given what i was doing the fact that i wasn't doing it full-time you know for the most part and um even when I was working with the NWF, which was full-time at that, you know, I was promoting for them. I was doing the TV production for them. Um, I was their champion. And again, that was more out of necessity than anything else because I showed up every night, so I was there. Um, they you know, say the best, avail- the best ability is availability, right? Exactly right. And so, you know, I never, I never thought of that, but I, I did think afterwards that because, you know, I didn't, I wasn't, wrestling seven nights a week you know um some of the chances i took you know after the fact that i said to myself yeah it, it probably wasn't a good idea sometimes to do some of those high um high risk matches and what actually put me out and i think mike had had sent me a question about this uh was i wrestled jt smith uh for twa and he during the match I was coming back into the ring and I thought he was going to put me into a bear hug. So he grabbed me around the waist and, you know, the, the classic thing, you put the, the, you know, the hands up over to push him out to get away from the bear hug. Then he pulled me over for a suplex and I landed on top of my head and my neck and I ended up with a pretty severe uh, brachial plexus injury, which ended up with both my deltoid muscles disappearing in about two weeks. And so that was actually what, uh, sent me out of the wrestling business. I, at that point, I, I had to wear a neck brace for about four months. Um, close to what, what happened to Big E Langston, you know, where the, the suplex didn't go all the way. So yeah. WWE, the African-American guy just a couple of months ago, they don't know, they're giving him like a year. Uh, but when, when your dad had that back injury, you began immediately working to help support your family, not in a, a wrestling job, but a, a filling station to, to help out. And exactly. it's yeah, you uh, you initially majored in criminal justice before moving to psychology and mental health. That's all heady stuff for a pro wrestler. We don't often associate wrestlers with, uh, you know, many do. And that's uh, this is proof that there are, are really quality people that multitask and have all of these outside tremendous things going on besides doing the physical job of wrestling. So kudos uh, to you. And of course, the DC came from Don Clyde. Right. Uh, I don't think that was, you know, when I just fly into Philly, you know, every uh, TWA Joel Goodhart show, I I didn't know your character. I was snapping away because I think you uh, were, uh, weren't you valid? Because I I know I have to find him and send him to you, but wasn't uh, 
Nancy Sullivan, either as Fallen Angel or Woman, uh, like your valet for like a, a duo for you guys? Yes, she was, yeah. Besides and, some of those other shows. And in fact, I still, you know, because Joel Goodhart, the TWA promoter, again, who, you know, Todd Gordon was working for and, and learning the biz and, and would later carry that super. I mean, the Joel Goodhart shows were just absolutely packed. Towards the last couple of years, they were just absolutely packed with stars. And that very last card. So I see him at the last couple of, this is Joel Goodhart, uh, who now is living in Florida, I think still doing insurance work. Uh, which is what his big adversary, Dennis Carluza, are both involved in insurance in the, you know, the Jersey Philly area. But Joel's last show, which the plug was pulled on, it was completely sold out. It was going to be the Battle of the Nature Boys, Buddy Rogers against Buddy Landell, Doc and Gordy. This is a, an all Japan legends match, Doc and Gordy against Prophet and Furnace and, and some other big things, a rematch of Sheik and Abby. So the actual last card that Joel had, Sheik and Abby were in the cage and they were going to have a follow-up. So this completely, can you imagine Abdul the Butcher and the Sheik on the show with the class of the class, Buddy Rogers, the real nature boy, first nature boy. And we were so bummed. Japan had already sent me my plane tickets, my round trip plane tickets and everything. And Joel has to pull the plug. And I'm going, Joel, the, the card was sold out. Why pull the plug? I mean, you were liquid, but I guess in some areas or maybe you know the talent all of those talent because remember it's very last show mm -hmm. I came in I drove in with Sheik and Sabu and Sabu was in the uh, the opening match was a reverse battle royal which no one had ever heard of before and uh, when Sheik came into the dressing room everybody Terry Funk Kevin Sullivan Eddie Gilbert Chris Candido uh, Medusa Luna Vachon Mick Foley they're all you know bowing so it was like pre Wayne's world we're not worthy when the sheet came in there um just incredible packed with talent so you know there was probably some big cost associated with that and obviously Kevin Sullivan and Nancy you know came up from Florida um and it was just you know magical and, and you mentioned guys like JT uh, Smith wasn't he uh, for a time in ECW was like part of the uh, full-blooded Italians even though he's African-American and he's like the farthest thing from being Italian, which was the joke of that. But uh, the NWF, tell us a little about that promotion, because the NWF I shot for in the 70s was Ohio and Buffalo based. It was Pedro Martinez with his lead star and, and co-booker and Johnny Powers. But this was not that NWF. It was a different one. Right. Well, what ended up happening was uh, I was interested in getting staying in my backyard because of the career I had outside. At that time, I was still in law enforcement. And I met up with a guy from Philadelphia by the name of Paul Swanger, who worked as a concrete cowboy. Mm. And he had a ring. And I said, you know what, why don't we start our own promotion in eastern Pennsylvania? And um, at that time, Vince was at the Hamburg or at the Hamburg Fieldhouse, plus at the uh, Ag Hall in Allentown. And I think Bruno had just gotten involved with a was the international wrestling, I believe, that was being taped in one of the hotels up in Allentown. Um, and I believe that I believe the Savoldis were involved in that as well. But anyway, we started a little small thing. And again, I wasn't looking for anything big. I said, you know, I want to do this. I want to be involved in wrestling, but I I can't travel. I don't want to travel. I just want to do something local. So we started running out of a BFW hall in eastern Pennsylvania. Oh, very well known. And and we did that um, probably every three weeks. 
And then I went to one of the local cable stations and I said, listen, you know, you guys are big sports people up here in the Allentown, Bethlehem Easton area. How about coming down and taping our show and doing a regular weekly show? And they said, oh, that's a great idea. So we put that show together and we started taping. And again, we did it just like Vince did it every three weeks, made three shows out of it. We did stuff in the studio. And what I would do then would be then to hike these these uh, tapes around the different cable outlets and TV stations in the area. And we had a pretty good thing going. We were doing the state fairs. We were doing a lot of the high school gyms. Again, small, but enough to get guys going. They trained guys. And then they started bringing guys in. Larry Winters, um, Jimmy Powers. Started bringing guys in. Um, and then I met up with Bob Raskin. I don't know whether you know Bob Raskin or not. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Bob said, listen, you've got something nice here. Why don't we make it bigger? And so at that point, I turned everything over to Bob. I still kept the TV production. And that's when the National Wrestling Federation got uh, came about again. Bob opened that back up. And uh, then at that point, I think it was maybe the mid-80s, maybe 84, 85, a lot of guys became available, a lot of free agents, Sergeant Slaughter. Um, just a whole bunch of guys became available. And then we started using that talent. And then we moved from that small cable company who was doing our tapings to the same people Vince was using, which was Channel 39 at Allentown, and they started doing our TV shows. And so at that point, National Wrestling Federation was born, and we were bringing in all kinds of stars. Uh, we were holding our tapings at Asbury Park at the at the center. We, we were all over the place doing the TV tapings. We cleared a lot of stations. We had a lot of TV stations. Um, we were going to end up with Financial News Network. Do you remember them? That was probably yeah, the mid-80s. Yeah, they were showing uh, Jerry Jarrett's promotion. Yes. Where I saw and watched the Lawler, Eddie Gilbert, the uh, car angle, etc. Yep. Well, we they, they were going to take our show. And that was a national station for us. And that was an exciting time for us. But at the same time, we also were using Paul Heyman. And Paul Heyman was our announcer. And then he started doing some managing for us. And I remember the night we were in Suffer, New York. We were doing a taping in, at uh, Suffer, New York. And Paul came to me in the hotel room and said, hey, listen, I got a chance to go down south and work for and work for Lawler. Or I think it was, maybe it was WCW he was working for. I don't remember which one. He said, I'm going to have to quit here. And he said, Paul, listen, if that's what you want to do, you know, do it. We'll find somebody else. It's not a big deal. That's a chance of a lifetime. Don't give it up. Well, Paul ended up going down there, and then probably within three weeks, I get a letter from Financial News Network telling them they're not going to take our show, that someone had sent them a cease and desist about running the show. And word got back to him, it was Paul Heyman, because he did not want to be seen on yeah. the Financial News Network since yeah. he was working for WCW. And because we, I, I say smart enough, I guess, at the time to really have things legally put together, you know, he had a case, you know, there, he had no contract with us. And he said, you know, you don't have a right to put my image on TV. So that blew everything. Now, again, I, I, I guess I can say it's rumor, but it was pretty good rumor because it came from people at Financial News Network who told me that. And that pretty much hurt, you know, National Wrestling Federation. And then there were some some battles going on between the people that were involved. Creative Entertainment got involved. I don't know whether you ever heard of, heard of them or not at the time. They were out of Camden, New Jersey. And they had... Yeah, Joe Hand or, or somebody. Uh, like uh, Mike Dano. Yeah. Rob, yeah. Rob Russin. Yeah. And um, they had contacts all over the country because they ran 
fair stuff. And we had, again, we had quite a, again, quite a promotion going there. And after the financial hey, news. Promotion, you dropped your own strap. No, it was initially called the Continental Wrestling Alliance. So exactly. First went down and worked for, that was like the parts of Tennessee and the Florida Panhandle. Uh, and, and quite a few guys from Memphis, including Eddie Gilbert, were there. And maybe that's what it was prior or unless it was WCW and they, they just told them, oh, you can't be on a competing show. But that other promotion had the same name of Continental uh, Wrestling. But in your own promotion, when it was, I believe, NWF, yeah, and you were the uh, lead baby face, you dropped to Sergeant Slaughter in 87. And then you held your uh, your company's promotion title two other times, and you feuded, if you remember, the Strongbow brothers, Jules Strongbow. Yes, yes. Larry Winters, we all know, and Bruiser Brody. Yeah. Can you tell us about that match? Because that's pretty huge, having Brody work for you. Well, we ended up having, um, I had quite a feud going with, with Jules Strongbow. And that was, and that uh, started with a regular match, and then we ended up having a chain match, a dog collar match, and then a an Indian strap match. And during that match, my manager, Damian Kane, got involved and we whooped on Strongbow for a while. And then Brody made the save. And that ended up with a steel cage match uh, with Brody and Strongbow against myself and, and Kane, which went over pretty big. And we were going to have a, another uh, return match with that. I was going to end up feuding with Brody. And um, I think maybe a month after the cage match, Brody was killed in Puerto Rico. I'm in the regular, you know, I, almost every couple of weeks with his widow, Barbara, who's remarried, and their son, Jeff, is doing great and, and all of that. Um, but Chief Frank Hill, he started, uh, Geigel sent him to my territory, my primary home base of L.A., and he worked as Chief Frank Hill and then uh, for about two years. And then next thing we hear, he's... Working as Jay Strongbow's brother as Jules. Yeah. So and I, and I liked I liked Frank. He was a really good guy, open to anything. Yeah, you know, great, a great worker. You yeah. founded another wrestling promotion, Pro Star Championship Wrestling in 88, 89. Yep. The you know, county fairs. Again, a lot of the same guys, including yourself, the mad dog, Jules Strongbow, Sergeant Slaughter, Larry Winters. Mm -hmm. And uh but who, because I'd never heard of uh, Joel Goodhart. So now we're we're going to the TWA, the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance, uh, 1990 to 1992. I'd never heard of Joel before until 1990, that name. How did, uh, well, tell us about that, because you were right there from the get-go of uh, TWA. When it ended up happening, I, I really had my fill of promoting. It, it, first of all, if I had my druthers at one point, I would have rather just stayed behind the scenes and ran the show and promoted the show and did the TV show. I thoroughly enjoyed that. Um, but I reached a point where I was so fed up with the promotion angle of it. Uh, guys trying to hold you up all the time for money. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to get into names, but there are some big names that tried to oh, do that. I was there for some of the stuff like Snooka had already agreed uh, at many shows around the country that I shot and was backstage for. You know, he agreed he would do the Superfly Splash and blah, blah, blah for the agreed upon amount. And then when it came time right before his match, he said, no, no, brother, I need another 500 or whatever the amount would be to do my splash. And it's not limited to him. God rest his soul and everything. 
but there were others too. You know, if you wanted to see their spectacular high spot or finish, you know, they, they'd hold you up exactly as you're saying. Oh, they would. And, and um, you know, they'd come out if, if it wasn't a, a good house. Nobody ever offered to give money back. If it was a great house, they all wanted more. And I reached a point where, you know, because I said, listen, I got a career outside of this business. I'm not going to let this business kill me. And that's when I walked away from it. Joel was running a uh, television or a radio show himself in Philadelphia. I think it was on WIP 610. And um, he was first, I think it was called Wrestling Radio. Wrestling, Wrestling Radio or Wrestling Radio. And that's how he got involved. He had me on as a guest one time. And he said he was thinking about opening up his own promotion. And that's how I got involved with Joel. And the first match we did, it was at Temple University at McGonagall Hall. And I did a spot with Larry where he threw me off the, the balcony. And that really started a big feud between Larry and I. And that's what went on most of the time with TWA, was Larry and my matches. But you get thrown from a second floor balcony way yeah. down to the floor. This was way before any of the guys in ECW were doing that insane stuff. <clears throat> did you get legit hurt? You know, we're talking about no. your dad and back injuries. No. No, I anything I did. Your chin and did the smart stuff there. I mean, anything I did, I always measured out. I always looked at it. I, I always figured out. I didn't do anything stupid. You know, I, or, I mean, anything. Well, that, that does make me ask a question, which is between – a dog collar match, a strap match, and a cage match. Which one did you feel was the most difficult to do without getting hurt? Probably the cage match. Just from the nature of being climbing the cage and being around and they're on top of the cage, it's kind of shaky. And Frank Brody, when he hit the cage, he hit the cage. He didn't fool, you know, he went in there full speed and, and everything Frank did was full speed. So that was probably the one that, you know, was was the most dangerous. But again, the other ones offered their danger, too, because sometimes the chain would get wrapped around your leg and you trip or, you know, so you do the best you can with trying to make it safe. But I always tried that, you know, it's getting hurt. You got to make money. I mean, and if you're hurt, you're not going to make any money. So you, you do take it easy, but you got to make it look good for the fans, too. So. Well, what did you think about, you know, the, the controversy behind the juicing that goes on? And especially, like, if you look at Ric Flair's last match, he even, you know, got cut in that final match, you know, to make it. You know, I have, I have my, again, now, now I'm, you can talk to me as a wrestler or talk to me as the, as the psychotherapist. <laughs> so, well, let's talk from the, from the wrestling standpoint first. Back when I first started, People still believed what they saw. So they get a little bit of juice was something that was part of the show. And, you know, you did it because it added to the show. It, it gave the fans what they wanted, especially if you're the heel, they want to see that. There's that sense of realism. So you give that to them. Once wrestling reached a point where people now know what it is and nobody pulls any punches and people are on national TV saying, oh, we're friends and, you know, we work together and we're telling a story. What's the point of juice? What's the point of cutting yourself? Right. It makes no sense. If you're going to tell people it's fake, then go in there with a blood capsule. Go in there with a, a bottle of, you know, fake blood poured on your head. When I see guys doing it today, especially these crazy um, matches with the, with the barbed wire and the, and the lights and the, 
and pulling glass out of each other and cutting themselves. And Ric Flair telling everybody, I'm going to cut myself in this match. So now I begin to look at it as a psychotherapist and say, self-mutilation is a serious thing. And a lot of guys who are doing this thing have some real serious psychiatric problems. That's my feeling today. You know, people that self-mutilate, people that cut have some real serious issues about themselves, how they view themselves. Self-hatred is one of them, or, or being unhappy with who they are. And especially when they see guys not just nicking themselves, but gouging themselves to the point that they're coated, they're loaded with blood. And so I ask myself, how healthy are some of these guys mentally that are in the ring today? I would never see myself going in, now that people know what it is, going in and having people bust a, a light over my head and pulling glass out of my head or being stitched up or being caught in barbed wire. It makes no sense to me. There was a, uh, I, I won't mention her name, everybody knows who it was, beloved uh, female wrestler, uh, first in, in WCW, where she was more a valet, and, and then lots of stuff, TNA later, the Jeff Jarrett promotion, a lot of indies. But she had done a lot of cutting and self-mutilation leading up to her eventual suicide. And that was really rough because a female wrestler with all the potential in the world, she was a tremendous athlete in Japan, the stardom promotion, uh, Rossi Ogawa's promotion, uh, on social media, she was attacked by all. She was on a reality show where you live in a house with other people. And uh, she had done something to one of the most popular males on there or questioned something that he had done. And social media attacked her and she took her own life. Uh, you know, it's really rough. A lot of famous movie stars and people like Angelina Jolie said they pulled back, not doing any social media because it's brutal. And so that goes hand in hand with what you're saying. You know, we used to think Lonnie Main, the original very first Moondog, Moondog Lonnie Main, uh, from about 72 on till his death in a car accident in 76, late 76, I believe it was, uh, did a lot of self-mutilating. And, and a lot of the promoters from Roy Shire to, you know, my two bosses, San Francisco Roy Shire, L.A. Michael Bell would say, oh, he's just, a, you know, a masochist was how they would. Uh, put it under the rug and deal with it, you know, because Lonnie would take legit pieces of glass, cut up his chest during promos, uh, chew on real glass, you know, like uh, geek acts from a circus or carny stuff, swallow goldfish, live goldfish from bowls. And that's how it was termed. But, you know, he loved, he was like Johnny Valentine. He loved stiff shots and he, you know, tell his opponents and Johnny was infamous for that. You know, really lay it in there. You know, he was a stickler for no light or, you know, the, the punches going in. And Russ, by the way, was a heel manager in the Northern California, my old area for quite a long time. So Russ has been in the, the biz. I don't think, Russ, you never gigged. Oh, are you kidding me? Uh, one time, um, uh, 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 the, the Reno scum went and uh, I was managing um, uh, uh, Malachi. And he had, he took the microphone from me and he was trying to be clever and he wanted to tap me on the head with the microphone to tell me to, to shut up. And the corner of the, the, um, uh, uh, the, you know, we had like a box that was the, uh, the logo and the corner, the box was tweaked a little bit. So the corner hit me square on the forehead and I started bleeding all over the place. That's what I, we call, 
I was gigging it, but it, yeah. it was. Well, that's it, called it was hard way, hard way, yeah. But yeah. anyway, let's get back to extreme uh, wrestling because a lot of people don't even know, and I'd kind of forgotten this. It uh, Joel's TWA was uh, renamed Eastern Championship Wrestling, or when in '92 when Joel Goodhart sold his stake in his own promotion to Todd Gordon, his number two guy, renaming the promotion Eastern Championship Wrestling. Of course, we all know what happened with Shane Douglas. Uh, on the Dennis Coraluzzo big NWA show, throwing down the belt and the birth of extreme championship. But uh, you, uh, I guess, it, I don't know if this was your last match for ECW, February 25th, 95, return of the Funker. That would be the Terry Funk Supercard. You were introduced, but they didn't give your name yet, as the mystery opponent for Cactus Jack by Nancy Sullivan as woman. Uh, to continue the cactuses mix feud with woman and the Sandman. And uh, so you had a match with Cactus Jack. What are your memories of that? And so Sandman and yourself and Terry Funk attacked Mick as Cactus Jack until Tommy Dreamer and Shane Douglas came out, I guess, making the save. Well, one of the interesting things about, about Cactus Jack is we ran a show in Pittsburgh, an NWF show in Pittsburgh, and Dominic was on the show and, and he comes up to me and says dc i got this great guy here i want you to put him on the show and i said well who's this and he says uh i think it was cactus jack. I, I don't remember whether he was working as cactus jack then or not it's uh, jack manson cactus jack that, manson. yeah that, yeah and, but um <laughs> it was one of the first matches that i think he had after being trained by dominic so i put him on our show in nwf and i knew the guy was kind of crazy then he was actually fun to watch and good to watch and then uh, years later, when they did the ECW thing, we talked about that. But I went in there, and I, I'd i been out of the business for a while at that point. I'd gotten so tired of it, I wanted nothing to do with it. And then they called me and said, hey, listen, you want to do a, an angle with this? I said, sure. And so I went down, and, um, yeah, I, I thought it was great. I thought it was a great angle, great idea. And I enjoyed it. And then they wanted me to, to work a program with Tommy Dreamer after that but what i saw in the locker room at ecw i wanted no parts of that the and amount of the guy was wasn't it the Heyman who may or may not have screwed you over on your losing tv off the financial news network he was the one that asked you to return for the series of matches with dreamer yeah it just sounds crazy now yeah and i and believe me I, all the stuff that goes on in wrestling i hold no ill will against anybody it's the nature of the business it's you go to a circus you know you expect to be you know see things out of circus that's just what it is and, and that's how it was with wrestling you, you know things happen people do things and you forget about it move on it's the nature of the business but you know what i saw in the locker room and the amount of drug use and the place was so filled with pot smoke i mean i just i said i have nothing to do with this number one i mean i don't do that but number two what i did outside of that or that my career outside of the ring I could not afford to be associated with something like that. So I just walked away at that point. You did have a, a match. So I've got to find the pictures of this too. August 27th, 05 at Russell Reunion. I think that's Mike yeah. Boothby and the Sal uh, Graziano's, not Sal, but Sal, whatever his name was. Sal uh, Corrente. Yeah. Right? He teamed with uh, Amy Love and the uh, NWA great Gary Royal against uh, George South Jr., the Patriot. I don't know if that was Del Wilkes or not. And Wendy Richter, right. Vince champ. 
for the women. And uh, and prior to that, you had a, a tag match with Spike Dudley from uh, ECW, but that was with Top Rope Promotions. And also yeah. APW graduate Spike Dudley. Yeah, Matt Heisen. Yes. That's Spike Dudley's real name, but he yeah he came from our our school, my home base promotion. And that's where I I uh, got my start was in APW also. Just having a plug there for. Here, I'm reading now. I'm reading uh, disclosure on his Wikipedia page, but you get your master's in psychological counseling, certified as an addictions counselor, which is tremendous. You went on to run the Living and Recovery Community Program (LARC), not for profit substance abuse. Non-profit, non-profit substance abuse treatment program for individuals with HIV. Uh, this was at the uh, uh, Shattuck Hospital in Boston. That's right. a big deal. That's a big deal. Well, I was, I was yeah. the director of that program, and um, again, that was with through another organization. I didn't invent that, and I didn't found that. I was hired to to work that to direct that program, and that, yes, it was at Shattuck Hospital and. That's what I did until I retired. Well, that's. Uh... I, DC, I had a question for you. Um, in California, we were really not part of the ECW audience. And um, it was really such an East Coast based thing, such an East Coast based yeah, phenomenon. I went down, I had to go back and shoot. Japan would send me back there, but I went and shot them all over the place. New Orleans, LA, where they had a heat wave promotion, or excuse me, a pay-per-view. And we got their TV, but it was on uh, a kind of a dinky, uh, over the air, uh, almost like a precursor to a cable channel that like you got world class on it. Like Saturdays was ECW was just one hour of nothing but wrestling all day long. Why do you think ECW didn't make greater effort to try to involve the West and the West Coast? Why? Because it wasn't a competing hotbed here. California's not the hotbed. The Northeast, New York, Jersey, Philly, Boston, uh, all of those, you know, the smaller states, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, they're huge. There are hundreds of cars. What's a bigger media market than Los Angeles? And San Francisco is like the number five or six media market. Not Northern California and Southern California. We're talking pro wrestling. We're not talking entertainment. Well, I'm interested in finding what DC's thoughts are. In terms of um, why didn't we, we did a number of NWF shows out there too. And when we went out there, we always tried to hire, uh, I think we hired Chavo Guerrero. Yeah. To work the shows, but we hired local talent. And even with that, we didn't have the kind of turnout that we had in the Northeast. And why do you think that is? Why, why do you think that is? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I think it's a different type of person than California. Um, well, what they say is, though, and you can tell Russ if you think this is true, is that there are so many other entertainment things because you know the, the amusement parks that are associated with disney and universal studios but, but all the east coast of, has all that maybe not to the extent you know they don't have the hollywood boulevard and all of the attractions where you can go to the studios and all of that wrestling is just not as big uh nor has it ever been since the 50s as it is in the northeast it's huge and don wouldn't you agree i mean it, it's it's just in the fabric of everybody's life. You, you say Bruno San Martino, not that many people now would know him on the West Coast. On the East Coast, still a god the way he deserves to be. And I also thought, too, you know, talking about California, some of the warmer locations, that maybe it's because, like up in the Northeast, 
it gets cold in September. So a lot of indoor stuff needs to go on. You don't have the parks open. Uh, you don't have those things. In California, it's open all year long for the most part. You have, a, like like Mike said, you have other things to do. The Northeast, it got cold. People wouldn't mind going inside to see things. So that's why I think it was really more the climate. But then again, you could say Florida. Florida was huge, too. Wrestling is embedded in people in the Northeast. They just, there are like a hundred shows to R1 or two on any given night, you know, in either Southern Cal or NorCal. And it's changing now, you know, now uh, some of the, the Ring of Honor type stuff, these groups are popping up in of all places, Washington State and Oregon. They're drawing sellout packed crowds. Wow. It, what it, do you it, think the blue collar nature of where your market was also had a lot to do with the popularity of of ECW um, and and you know the the hardcore nature of it because of you know the blue collar the more of a blue collar audience. In- well, you know, if I were to look at audiences, and that's another thing, I think wrestling fans today have changed from what I saw in the eighties. You know, there were. I could go there and you'd have families there and, you know, you, you work it. Yes. You had some blood. There was no swearing. There was no, um, you know, dirty, there, there weren't women half dressed and people, you know, things that go, that I see go on today. It's, it was a different type of fan and the fans I see today, I'm kind of concerned about, you know, I, I, what they want and what they're looking for. ECW had a certain kind of fan and, um, I don't want to paint because I love the fans, and I don't want to paint them with a brush, but it's a different type of audience today, and even with ECW. I mean, they drew a niche crowd, and outside of that, you weren't going to get families. You weren't going to get a a big draw like that. I mean, I remember going into places where kids lined outside the dressing rooms waiting for you. You didn't see that with ECW. You saw people out there that were just as crazy as the wrestlers were. You know, so it was kind of concerning to me and even seeing what's happening today what the, what some of the fans want what they're looking for it shows crazy moves and and blood and it's concerning and and to think that wrestlers are doing that in front of sometimes 30 people 40 people it's, the, uh, the school of thought is a exposing the biz heard on many levels now with x percentage of fans smart or thinking they're smart when they're really not a lot of the time and um yeah you know you're right i mean some of these pure wrestling promotions that came out of when ecw you know went under for a variety of reasons and vince kind of bought them out a uh, ring of honor came out and and there was you know that was an s a part of ecw that there, there was actual wrestling it wasn't all you know opening match to main event blood there was uh, the eddie guerreros against dean malenko type outstanding you know pure type pro wrestling matches. Uh, and, and that's what's really hot now. But yeah, you know, it's it's a whole different, I, I just blame, uh, you know, Vince for on a biggest, the biggest level, you know, exposing the biz, having a press conference with the Wall Street Journal of all people, they would be the ones to bring him down. This was 2002, I think, and 2022, the same Wall Street Journal brought him down. Uh, but he exposed the biz basically to get rid of allegedly, you know, the ringside doctors, you know, saying yeah. this, our entertainment is, that's what it is. It's entertainment. It's no different than Ringling Brothers because he didn't want to pay. He wanted to have it taken out of the hands of the state athletic commissions, which charge a lot of money 
you had to pay for a ringside doctor and all of this stuff. And but you know, the, the thing about that, Mike, is it wasn't that much. The ringside doctor cost me $125 at a show. The referee, altogether, the commission, the package with the commission was probably less than $500 for the, the referees, the timekeeper. And, uh, yeah, but like in California, you have to also pay like 15% of your show. Um, where in California, the athletic commission charges $15, 15% of your show take. And I know that Vince wanted to cut that out. That's that, what I think the big thing was, is, is the ticket set, you know, the percentage of the ticket sales, you did have to pay that. And, um, again, you know, drawing a thousand fans wasn't that much, but if you're in a 20,000 feet, a 20,000 seat venue, I can imagine why you don't want to pay that. So, but but the, the the commission itself, you know, paying those guys was not a huge amount of money. But I'm sure it was more the ticket sale tax than anything else. All right, so. Matt, uh, we're we're winding up. I do want to say I want to have you plug everything you'd like to plug. But uh, another point from his IMDb page and Wikipedia in the '80s, you launched an anti-drug program for school kids called Beyond No. So you're to be commended for all of your tremendous work helping the planet. So you didn't just entertain the planet, but you also helped them on a real shoot level, obviously shoot being real. Mm -hmm. but let's let you plug, every, we'll have you back definitely because we just scratched the surface with DC Mad Dog Drake uh, as the great human being is, but let's let you plug anything you'd like to plug because uh, I'm not sure uh, like if you're going to shows, are you going to like shows that are, you know, some promotions actually advertise themselves as being family friendly. So that's kind of cool. So that's a, a positive with what you were saying, but let's let you plug away and tell people where they can see you. If you're, uh, if you go to some of these, uh, the East coast is also full of like chiller theater, you know, conventions where they'll have like rows and rows of pro wrestlers amidst movie and TV stars and sci-fi stars and stuff. Well, I don't, I, I don't really have a lot to plug. I, I, like I said, I'm working with an attorneys now, you know, doing that work and doing a lot of presentations. It's Connolly Law, Connolly Law Offices, uh, which is located in uh, Martha's Vineyard and Pawtucket, Rhode Island and Mystic, Connecticut. And I do run their website. I do blogs twice a week um, and I do presentations for them. So that's my big thing now. Uh, but, but just talking about going out and doing those conventions, I did one last year in Philadelphia. And uh, I'll never do it again. Mm. Really? Yeah. I. There was something. The, the gentleman that brought me in was a great guy, Eric Sims. So I have no, no issues with Eric. But the amount of money that people were being charged just um, left the bad taste in my mouth. I mean, there were people coming in in wheelchairs, um, mm. people coming in with obvious disabilities. And I saw that, you know, you just want to give them something, you know, They're, they've been fans all their lives. This is what they, they live for. This is what they want. And to charge them 25 bucks for a picture or $40 for a picture with them and just let the bad taste in my mouth. It was something I just don't want to, I don't want to have any part of. So, you know, I don't think I'll ever do a convention again, you know, based on, I understand people need to make money and that's their business. And, you know, that's what they do for a living and that's how they earn money today. But that's not for me. You're a man of incredible integrity. Can you give our fans your social media information so if they want to get in touch with you, um, how they could do that and whatever, uh, your email perhaps or however you want to? 
Yeah, if they want to do do an email, it's dcdrake2021 at gmail.com. And I have considered opening a website. I, I I don't know why people have been telling me to open my own website. I, I'm not sure people even remember me, you know, but. Oh, they do. But, I, you know, I often thought about it just for wrestling stories because I like to talk to people about wrestling. Not, I'm not talking about the stories of being on the road and being drunk, but other wrestling stories. Like you said, Mike, there are a lot of guys out there that are doing a lot of good stuff outside the ring that people need to know about. And I often thought about doing a website just highlighting that and, and get away from the the drinking and the drugs and what everybody thinks wrestlers are. So that's in my head, and maybe someday I'll do it. I don't know. You could do when I bring you back the next time, maybe we'll talk about the fun at the Red Roof Inn, which was where, depending on if you were on like a Coraluzo or a, a Joel Goodhart show, you know, all the boys would be there. I don't know how. Did you know uh, Dennis Corluzzo and Gino Moore, those guys, all that well? Yeah. I mean, I can tell. <laughs> I'm not going to get into the story. I, Dennis was fine. Gino caused me a major problem at a show one time, and um, I almost got, got, got my my promoter's license suspended in New Jersey. Jeez. And uh, it, it was something, again, that I would never. I fired him that night, and um, it was bad. And that was one of the things I didn't want to be involved in with wrestling is that kind of behavior and those kind of things. So I tried to stay away from that, but it was just so hard. You know, you're bringing in 20 personalities and you can't control what they do. So uh, it's, it's, it's like you're the ringmaster. Dennis, and you'll find this funny, Dennis would insist that I stay at his house whenever I'd come out to shoot Joel Goodhart stuff, specifically just Joel Goodhart stuff. You know, and and he then he would you know try to get me to take in his you know there was always a something attached to it taking his shows at a TWA which I always say I can't do that I'm not passing out flyers I'm just a ringside photographer I don't want to lose my ringside privileges but he would have these great events like the night before you know something he would promote a show or signings. And if it was one of his shows, I, I just remember like in 89 meeting Chris and Tammy Sitch for the first time. They had like wrestling's longest engagement. But we would watch and, and listen to this room of folks. Jimmy Cornette, sometimes Bobby Eaton, Terry Funk, Mick Foley, uh, Scott Goldstein, who you might remember, photographer, writer, historian. Uh, hopefully it's fondly, but not like with uh, Fat Gino. But and who else would be there? But it'd be, you know, a bunch of guys and we'd be watching like uh, Tiger Mask Dynamite Kid matches from Japan from midnight till four or five, six in the morning. You know, and Dennis would have pizza and food and all of this stuff for us. And sometimes uh, he and Jim Cornette would uh, do phony phone calls to people at Irk Jim in, uh, in Tennessee. And I remember Bill Watts and Harley Race coming in, seeing these guys making phony phone calls, Dennis and Jim Cornetti go, what are you guys, five years old? You know, it's a classic stuff. I know uh, you've got a lot of stuff to say. You should do a book. You know, and you think people don't remember you. They definitely remember you. And, uh, and yes, we, we, we definitely have enjoyed having you on the show tonight. Um, uh, and we would love to have you back as a guest soon. So if you have anything that uh, uh, you want to promote, you know, coming up in the future, uh, keep us in mind. We'll have you back on. And we really enjoyed having you this week. So thank you very much. We'll see everyone next week. Good night, everyone. Hey, Mike, Gross, thank you. I got to send him some photos of him in his glory, too, with the uh, 
the face paint, the dark black uh, around his eyes. We'll ask him about that the next time we have him on. Sounds good. I want to really thank DC Mad Dog Drake, wrestling superstar, but an even better human being outside and away from the ring. Thank you so much, Don. Appreciate it. Okay, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Good night, it. everyone.